Hi, my name is Ava Langridge, and I'm here to help you become a climate activist. On today's episode of Let's Talk Climate, we have guest speaker Elizabeth Gulugulu. She is the former global focal point to the official children and youth constituency of the UNFCCC. Liz is currently a master candidate in biodiversity conservation and has a bachelor's in environmental science. In this episode, we cover the importance of climate education, how governments, organizations, and individuals equally contribute to systemic change, and what mistakes you should avoid as a new climate activist. Hi Liz, how are you? I'm great, how are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you for asking. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Today we're going to cover how young people can be climate experts. We will also talk about NDCs and Enhanced Transparency Framework. First and foremost, I just want to thank you for uh, having this discussion with me. My name is Elizabeth Gulugulu Machache, pronounced as she or her. So the first question is, how did your work with youth climate advocacy come about? Okay, so um, back then, a few years back, I think that was in 2018, when I was doing my intern um, internship. I did my internship at an organization called Environmental Management Agency uh, based in Zimbabwe. So uh, it exposed me to different environmental degradation that is currently happening within that particular community. So this community is known for mining because it has gold. So there are a lot of mining activities that are happening. So we're talking about small scale miners and some that are not, that are actually doing it at commercial scale, not small scale miners. And my role as an intern was to assist the officer in charge to do environmental audits and um, to do awareness uh, to the communities surrounding how to take care of the environment, ETC. But as I got into the field, the things that I saw, I was very devastated on how humankind is treating the environment. You'd find small scale miners, they get to mine, but they don't get to rehabilitate the environment. So for me, this is how it really started. I started um, disseminating the information on my social media platforms. Uh, Some, I started documenting it, but this is how my passion began because I was like, how could we do this as humankind? We're supposed to be stewards of the environment, not distractors or destroyers of the environment. So this is how it all started. What were some of the biggest mistakes that you have seen um, young climate activists make? Okay, I will not start with climate activists, but I'll also start with the mistakes that I have done (laughs) as an activist. I think number one mistake is, you know, um, thinking, I thought I knew it all. There is, yes, there is a certain point whereby you think you know it all, but it is always good to understand that, you know, there, are, there is new information that is coming in each and every day. And as an activist, it is our role and our responsibility to be updated with the current information, especially on statistics and figures. So I thought I knew it all. And um, sometimes you would speak in, in front of a crowd and you think you got the figures and the statistics right. Maybe that's a publication uh, which was publicized like two years back and it's not 
that recent or current uh, which somehow, you know, affects and there are people that are like, oh, no, you're lying. Uh, this is not what the current uh, statistics say or this is not what the current information say. Then the other thing is working alone. Sometimes we think we can do it all by ourselves, which is really impossible. Um, as activists, we always need each other. You always need someone who believes in your cause, someone who continues to empower you, someone who mentors you within the journey. So for a moment, uh, you think you can handle everything by yourself, which I think um, is not good or might not be necessarily true. Uh, these are some of the mistakes that I did. And for some activists, what I have seen, um, it's pretty much the same with some of the mistakes that I did, but also I'll be like, well, I think when I was their age, this is, you know, I also made these mistakes and maybe, you know, it's a it's a learning curve for, for them. So for some activists, I've seen the same things, but also not willing to engage more with with other with other groups as well, because there are different types of activism. We have the extreme activists and we have merely activists, people that are just, you know. Uh, activists and we have people that have gone to school that have studied environmental science or that have studied climatology and you know they are activists because they are referring to the things that they have studied and it's research-based etc so there are these different types of activism and you see that these activists they love to work in isolation uh, per group, whereas I think it is very important that we continue engaging with, at, with other activists so that you get to understand where their activism is coming from or where they base their active, activism from. So, yeah. What type of activist would you call yourself then? Well, I love referring to, you know, sci science, uh, scientific-based research. I mean, I'm in, the, I'm in academia myself. I'm currently pursuing a master's in biodiversity conservation. And I believe all the research that other young people did is very valuable. It's just that um, we don't have access to it, but I love basing my research. I love basing my activism on research. For me, it's just not a matter of saying to people, you should stop eating meat. It has to be scientifically based. Why are we telling people not to eat meat? Um, if a certain indigenous community heavily relies on meat, is it realistic for me to tell them to stop eating meat because this is the food that they have access to? So for me, my activism is very real to what you know people are currently facing, um, uh, different communities are currently facing and the resources and access that they have at that particular time. You mentioned the importance of joining multiple groups and kind of expanding a little bit and not just sticking to one very specific pathway. Are there any groups or types of groups that you would recommend a young climate activist could join? Yes, definitely. I mean, we have a Fridays for Future. I think this is the most, uh, the most common group uh, that people know. Um, we also have Yungo, which is the official children and youth constituency, but for Yungo, mainly focuses on the UNFCCC processes, right? Which is the framework that, you know, that guides us when it comes to climate related issues. 
And for Fridays for Future is basically activism. It doesn't have to be in line with UNFCCC processes, but it's just, you know, uh, basically activism and they they can fit into any uh, any summit or any conference, etc. But Yungo is specifically uh, a constituency uh, of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. There are quite a number of of youth or children uh, platforms that you know any young person can be part of. I know UNICEF has something as well. Um, there are quite a number of them, uh, but these are the easier ones that easily come. Um, that easily come because I've engaged and worked with uh, some of them. Shifting a little bit, NDCs are very important in the Paris Agreement. Can you please expand on what they are and why they're so important? Yeah, um, NDCs, we call them, the abbreviation stands for Nationally Determined Contributions. So basically we are saying these are the commitments of different countries. Uh, what they have, what they are committing to in terms of, you know, reducing the greenhouse gas emissions. So um, if it's Zambia, I mean, I'm just picking a particular country. Um, they'll say, oh, we are committed to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions uh, maybe by 25% in a period of five years time. And uh, we intend to reduce this greenhouse gas emissions in maybe in the forest sector, the wildlife sector, uh, the food sector, etc. and stuff. So this is what we are committing to because at the end of the day, we do not want it to be a talk show, right? Uh, we want people to be accountable of their actions and therefore they need to be committed to something. Um, so this is why I really think that the conversation on NDCs is critically important because it also makes us as young people to be aware of what our countries are working on. And it also helps us to narrow our objectives to feed into the plans of the government. Because if the government is planning on reducing certain greenhouse gas emissions in the agricultural sector, it means that as a youth organization, we could come up with a lot of initiative within the agricultural sector, focusing on reducing GHG emissions. So this is why the indices are critically important, um, not only for young people, but for everyone to really understand which country has committed to what and how can we narrow or how can we coordinate with the government, with different institutions, with communities to work on what the government will have committed to. Thank you so much for that, that extensive um, breakdown of what NDCs are. Um, how would you recommend somebody goes about looking those up or researching them or learning more about the ones that are um, relevant to them? So the NDCs are on the UNFCCC portal. Um, they You can go on the UNFCCC website and you can search for NDCs and you can look, you can actually get to find the latest NDC document that was submitted um, in COP. Before COP26, it was supposed to be 2021. Uh, so they were submitted in some 2020, some submitted in 2020, some 2021. So you can actually get to see um, different countries' NDCs and you can see what they have committed to and the stakeholders they intend to work with in meeting those targets or in achieving uh, the commitments that they have pledged. 
You recently supported a piece about transparency under the Paris Agreement. Could you please share some of the key takeaways from the guide and why you believe it's so significant? Yeah, so I mean, we have, I have explained what indices are, right? And transparency, we cannot separate transparency from indices because by transparency, we are saying how transparent are we in communicating uh, or how transparent are we in making sure that the greenhouse gas emissions that we have committed to reduce is done in the right way? How transparent are we as a country? So giving an example of my country, Zimbabwe, if we say we are committing to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions by 40%, and we are looking at the waste sector, now transparency comes into play because it ensures that uh, all information is available, right? Not only making sure that all information is available, but also it reviews the kinds of steps or the initiatives that we are doing in making sure that we are reducing these greenhouse gas emissions in the waste sector. So in the waste sector, we might say, oh, we are eliminating plastics. Uh, by eliminating plastics, this will mean that we have fewer plastics that are going to our waste dump. And if we have fewer plastic going to our waste dump, it means that when we ban the waste dumps, we have limited uh, gases that are getting that are going into our atmosphere. So this is where transparency comes because we are now analyzing. So, okay, let's say by 2015, within the waste sector, we're emitting, let's say 80%. Meaning if it's now 2023, there is need to be a reduction of the gases that we're emitting in 2015. And that reduction is shown by our actions, is shown by the best policies that we would have put in place and also the stakeholders that we are working in. So this is where transparency comes in. It just doesn't have to end on the commitments, which are the indices, but we need to go deeper. We need to see through uh, the things that we would have committed to that. How exactly are we achieving the commitments that we stated we would achieve in a particular sector. Are there any specific countries that come to mind that have done a phenomenal job of this? Definitely, we have uh, quite a number of countries, uh, but also we do have a number of countries that have not managed to be transparent enough not because they don't want to, but also the topic is quite complex and complicated because we are talking about numbers. And we are also talking about the availability of experts who are able to review uh, the country's communications, right? And we don't have those. So it's, it has to do with you know availability of capacity, human capacity, availability of financial capacity. Um, we do have like most countries within the developed countries, Germany, uh, the Netherlands, uh, the UK, they've managed to, you know, to, to, to be a bit transparent uh, in, you know, in, in, some of the, in some of their targets. And by the way, 
being transparent does not mean you are actually doing what you have committed to. You could be transparent and say, you know what, we pledge to reduce a you know these emissions in this sector, but as a country, we have not managed to reduce these emissions. Maybe there has been actually an increase due to maybe various reasons, right? So it's not a matter of communicating the positive on transparency issues. It's also a matter of also communicating the things that we did not manage to achieve. Why should we and how can we create ties between institutions, for example, the governments, and create the ties with organizations? Yes, I mean, the role of especially NGOs is to make sure that the government is accountable, right? I've been talking about transparency, how accountable and transparent is the government. But also we need to understand that it is not only the responsibility of the government to be transparent and to be accountable. As NGOs, we also have a role to play in this whole process. Um, it's either we could provide some sort of support to the government, we could be partners of the government in making sure that the government has financial support, has um, human resources, uh, or has enough capacity in ensuring that they get to achieve their targets. Uh, in most cases, especially in the developing countries, you'll see that we do have UN agencies, UNDP, FAO that are actually supporting governments to come up or to do consultations on their NDCs. Most governments were supported by different UN agencies to do consultations on their NDCs and to eventually submit them. Then we now have other organizations like FAO that are offering technical capacity to the governments, especially on transparency and on making sure that uh, there is availability of technical experts who can help the government to achieve the uh, communicated targets. So it's not only a matter of making sure that the government is accountable, but it's understanding where we fit in to the whole uh, chain as NGOs or as the private sector, how we can work together to reach the communicated targets and you know, uh, not only working together, but also complementing each other's efforts, right? Uh, so I think in short or in summary, this is uh, what I can say. You mentioned the importance of having governments and organizations collaborate. Do you think these two um, different groups as well as individuals are equally important in systemic change? Yes, they are, they are equally important because in most cases, what people should understand is we do have the power to influence change. Of course, the governments now has the power to make sure that the policies are in place and the environment is conducive or the environment is, you know, is friendly for us as NGOs or individuals to operate, but us as individuals or as NGOs, we do have the power to influence change. If we want certain policies to be there, we can influence that through proper channels, of course. 
each and everyone has a role to play. It's a 50-50 situation. And at the end of the day, you see, even if the policies are there, they'll need to be implemented. In most cases, it's not the government that implements the policies, but it's us as individuals and the NGOs that get to implement uh, these policies. So we, we all do have a role to play here. That's a perfect segue into our last question. What would your advice be to young climate activists trying to get more involved in the climate movement? For climate activists, I think what I would really encourage them is to read. For one, to advocate for the environment. Well, if you do have the resources and if you do have the passions, yes, you can go to school and study environmental science. But already some, they are in different fields. Some studied finance, some studied, you know, uh, something that is definitely not in line with climate change or environmental sustainability whatsoever, but they are really in the space as, you know, activists or climate change activists. There is a lot of information on the internet, um, which you can make use of. You can actually also visit the UNFCCC uh, website for more information, though you might find a bit more of technical information, but we have UNCC land, which offers free courses for any young person who is interested in understanding what climate change is and it is the basics, just to if you want to learn what mitigation means, what adaptation means, what is the role of the community in, in, in climate change. I mean, those that information, you can actually get it on UNCC land. You can take a few courses there. And when you do your activism, it is based on something that has been verified. We have different uh, you know, publications uh, that are publicized each and every year, like the IPCC reports. It is always important to follow those reports because they have important information, especially when it comes to statistics, uh, figures, ETC, which may also help you in your activism. Then last but not least, we need the activists need to learn to engage with other activists. Um, I'm not saying you need to be part of different groups, but you need to engage. You need to learn what other people are doing and uh, identify what you're doing can maybe um, what you're doing. Maybe you could work with the other group that are doing more or less the same, because in most cases, there's a lot of replication and duplication that is happening within within the space. And you'd ask yourself that, oh, if group A and group B could have worked together, maybe this campaign could have been a bigger campaign. But it's because we do not like working together. In most cases, we think what we are doing is right and right and right. And therefore we get to miss the bigger picture. The bigger picture here is we want our greenhouse gas emissions to be reduced. So in my case, I don't even mind if I collaborate with like 18 or 40 organizations that are doing the same thing because I know the impact will be better. So this is what we need to learn, read more, uh, take free courses if you need, I mean, if you need the free courses, engage, collaborate with other youth organizations and continue, you know, visiting, um, you know, the UNFCCC website for important updates or for technical information that might help you in your activism. The organization that I founded called Our Youth for the Climate offers free weekly classes 
um, online on Zoom. So if you want to sign up for those, the link is in my bio. Um, definitely come and join us in that. Well, that's it for today, Liz. Thank you so much for spending the time with me chatting about NDCs, the importance of transparency and the links and collaboration between governments and organizations and activists. Thank you so much. That's it for today. My name is Ava Langridge, and I'm going to help you genuinely have an impact. I'll see you again next Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific time.